If you've got your Bibles with you, you might want to turn to Matthew chapter 18. I think the words are going to come on the screen. And I'm just going to read uh, Matthew 18, verses uh, 15 to 18, and then verses uh, 23 to 35, as we kind of come to a bit of a conclusion in this uh, short series that you've been uh, doing on uh, values. Uh, We're looking this morning at the values of, uh, well, why we practice forgiveness and reconciliation. So let's read the scripture. I'm looking to the screen. Okay, well, I'll read it. Um, Oh, here we go. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison till he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. They went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this, said Jesus, is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, In the early 1980s, a man called uh, Leslie Newbegin, who uh, was one of the most profound uh, missional thinkers of the 20th century, uh, returned to the UK after a lifetime uh, spent in missional church leadership in India. He was a bishop in the Church of South India. Now, with his vast experience of cross-cultural mission, um, he became a prophetic voice to the Western church, calling the church in the West to recognize that we too 
um, are a countercultural movement in an increasingly inhospitable culture. Um, this might resonate more today than it might it did say 40 years ago, but um, I think even 40 years ago, um, there was an assumption that as Christians, we were kind of part of the establishment, you know, we were part of the world order, that you couldn't get much of a cigarette paper between our values and the values of the world. Today, we recognize uh, that that is increasingly not the case, that we are um, a profoundly countercultural movement offering something very, very different. And New Begin uh, has become a, a really uh, prophetic voice. His major book that he wrote, some of you might have read it, was called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And having reflected on the fact that we live in this pluralist age where um, there's no real regard for truth. Uh, you know, we might believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but other people aren't going to necessarily go along with that. Their truth is their truth, and who are we to say that we have the truth? You know, it's just one opinion amongst a vast range of, of many others. And so Newbegin ends his book with this question. He says, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible? How is it possible that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I'm suggesting, he said, that the only answer, the only explanation of the gospel, is a congregation of women and men who believe it and live by it. Now, that's not rocket science, but you know, the, the truth in that is absolutely profound. How is it that people will be persuaded that there is something of validity in the Christian way, in that which we hold it? It is simply when they look upon us, the society of the followers of Jesus Christ, and recognize that at, at the heart of our existence is a, a quality of life, a kind of life that is different and distinctive and actually is more attractive, is something that, um, uh, you know, Deep down, people aspire to. There are qualities here which represent the good life. And that's, you know, perhaps why we today, many of us here, find ourselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. It might just be that it was um, observing, shall we say, uh, the, uh, the quality of the lives of others that set us hungering after something more. So remember a story a friend of mine told me. He, he was a, a church leader. This is quite some years ago now. But he, he, he was leading a church down um, in, the, in the southeast of England. And he said, I realized that we had quite a lot of younger women uh, members of the church, but their husbands wouldn't come anywhere near. So he said, I arranged a beer and pizza night. And, and we advertised it as an any questions. He said, we, we said we'll have beer and pizza and we will um, um, just... It'd be an opportunity for people to talk about, you know, doubts and reservations about the Christian faith. And so he said, we, we met and had some beer and pizza. And uh, I started, I said, my name's Dave and I lead the church and I'm a Christian because dot, dot, dot. And the next guy said, well, you know, my wife comes to church. I'm not particularly interested, but I like these people. He said the next guy had clearly been, you know, saving up a lot. And um, right, he said, you know, my name's Ron. And he said... For 50 minutes, he just engaged in a diatribe against, you know, all that was wrong and evil in the Christian faith. Well, he said, the, people getting itch, twitchy and so on. And he said, after about an hour, uh, 
he, he stopped and he'd done what he came to do, which was to hijack the evening. And my friend Dave said, well, I, I did say, guys, we'd only have an hour and we've had our hour. I'm sorry those who haven't had a, a chance to you know, speak, but um, if you're interested, we can do this again sometime. And uh, he said, I was thinking, oh, I've just blown it. You know? And uh, anyway, another guy who had said nothing got up and he walked over and he said to Dave, um, I've never had any interest in the Christian faith, he said, but I'd like to become a Christian. And, and Dave said, I thought he was taking the mick. He said, I have just listened to that guy tear you off a strip for 50 minutes, and I've watched how you've responded, he said. I don't think I could do that. I want what you've got. I want to become a Christian. And um, it, was, it came to Christ there and then. Uh, uh, that's why Dave was telling the story, I think. Um, but actually living a life which is distinctive, actually, especially when the pressure is on, living a life which demonstrates a quality which is supernatural, frankly, which draws on resources beyond ourselves and, and equips us to, to navigate our way through uh, the spills of life. That seems to me to be one of the most attractive things, which is winsome. There are many characteristics which are beautiful in the, in the Christian walk, but perhaps one of the most beautiful and compelling may well be being a community which models good relationships, which models how we uh, practice forgiveness and reconciliation. That's our, our theme this morning. In fact, this may well be the most countercultural aspect of what it means to walk the Christian walk. You see, we are a relational entity. The New Testament describes us as the body of Christ. That, that in itself is a beautiful image to describe who we are. Uh, it, it reflects the truth that we are the living representation of Jesus on earth, his physical presence, his body. But more than that, it talks about the fact that within our experience as a body, we are akin to a human body. We're all like the different limbs and organs, and we all depend and rely on one another you see, what the world says, looking at a gathering like this, is that we are simply a collection of individuals. The world's model for what it means to be me or you is that I am an individual, and, and an individual is an autonomous person. You know, I am the best judge of who I am and what's right for me, and woe betide anybody who wants to get in the way of me exercising my freedom to be me, because that's who I am, kind of thing, you know. Real freedom, real, real uh, satisfaction is to be found in pursuing my path. But what a lonely existence that is. What an isolated existence. What a dysfunctional uh, kind of community that leads to. It's like being permanently on Twitter, you know. It's just sort of being, I don't know, in an echo chamber of my, myself. We are, the Bible says we are not individuals. We are people, and there's a, a profound difference. An, an individual is defined by who I am in myself. A person is defined by who I am in my relationship, supremely with God, but also with one another. I, you know, I find my fullness through actually um, surrendering my autonomy by relating to God in surrender, as we've sung and worshipped this morning, but also my relationships with others. I find my fullness uh, through um, uh, living that shared life. This may well be one of the most countercultural things we practice. And um, if we take seriously the business of being a relational body, then clearly how we practice forgiveness and reconciliation is going to be central to the health 
of, of that way of life. Because you see, in talking about um, being a relational body, what we, are, we are not pretending that within the body of Christ we do not have conflict. We're not pretending that relationships do not get strained. That is the nature of human living when we bump up against one another. What will distinguish us from the world is not that we avoid conflict or avoid difficulty or avoid challenge, but that we resolve those things well. And that's really what uh, Jesus is going on about in Matthew 18. So if you've got that passage open, do um, uh, look at it. And I want to suggest that there are, th there are three things we can draw from this passage, three things which shed light on how we... Our question is, how do we practice or why should we practice uh, forgiveness and reconciliation? I want to draw attention to three things. And the first is this. We practice it because I have a responsibility towards my sisters and brothers in Christ. We are a, 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 a body of mutual responsibility. And that comes out clearly in verses 15 uh, to 18. So Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and show them their fault in private. If they listen to you, you've won your brother. And then he goes on to talk about doing other things. Now, let me say what this passage does not say. Um, and it might just be that some people have translations of the Bible which are wrong here. Uh, if your Bible says, if your brother and sister sins against you, let me say that is a much, that's, that's a wrong translation. It's actually a, a later interjection into the biblical text because Jesus isn't talking about if you've been wronged by somebody, this is how you get right with them. This is how you jolly well sort them out and make sure that you call them to account. That, you know, it's not, whew, you know, Luke has really offended me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell him. And if he doesn't listen, I'm going to get the church wardens in. And I'm going to say, this, this guy did this. And if he doesn't uh, listen to the church wardens, I'll haul him up in front of you lot and say, you will never believe what he said about me last week. You know, this is not this. This is not about me wanting to get right. This is me grieving over the path that one of my sisters or brothers is taking and, and longing uh, that they should not pursue that path which will be destructive for them. This is not about getting right or keeping scores. This is about enabling one another to do well. The context in which it comes, if you notice the passage that comes immediately before that, it, Jesus tells the story of the man who has a hundred sheep and one goes, goes missing. What does the man do? He goes looking for the lost one. And it's kind of Jesus saying, and this is what we do with one another. You know, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. Um, and I have to say, uncomfortable though it has been, I have been profoundly grateful at times for those who have plucked up courage, especially at formative times in my own Christian walk, and said, Ian, is that really a good thing to do? I'm just a bit uncomfortable about the way you spoke to so-and-so after a heated staff meeting or something like that, you know. It, it, it's hard, isn't it? It's much easier to keep quiet, but it, you know, and it's not about scoring points. It's about having a care and concern. Uh, I think two of the times when I have had to pluck up courage and say to a Christian friend, I just think the path you're proposing to go down is not going to be good for you. And I know the deep sadness of having seen people pursue that path and come a cropper. So actually what Jesus is talking about is finding ways of helping one another. It, it, and it might be, I mean, at its best, this is worked out, for example, in accountability relationships. When I was um, leading a church, which I stopped doing about seven years ago, um, 
I used to meet fortnightly with a close friend and a close colleague. We had breakfast together. We met in all kinds of business contexts, but when we met for breakfast, in fact, we still do meet occasionally uh, for breakfast, we had a series of hard questions we asked each other. We were both married, so we would ask, were we treating our wives well? Uh, and when you know that in a fortnight's time you're going to meet your mate and he's going to ask you these questions, it jolly well makes sure that you can answer honestly, you know. Uh, and, uh, but having that kind of accountability thing is kind of one way of working this out. But there might be contexts when, you know, um, we simply have to go up to somebody and, and, and eyeball them privately or whatever. Um, of course, this all this teaching is given in the context of churches, which have been small house churches. So, you know, where in a sense there was no hiding, and where relationships were significantly more important because the health of that little sort of house community was was threatened. But I do have a responsibility uh, towards my sisters and brothers to keep them from sin, to help them grow in holiness to help them pursue more fully the way of Christ. Uh, the second reason, as it were, why we practice um, forgiveness and reconciliation, maybe perhaps the most obvious one from these verses, and I suppose really that's verses uh, 21 uh, uh, and following. And it's this, that our common life in Christ is, as I said earlier, to be a visible signpost to God's mercy and grace. We are a community of grace. We are those who have received God's grace, God's mercy, and that should be the flavor which suffuses every part of our shared life and experience. Um, one of the great, we talked about, you know, um, being a, 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 the body of Christ, one of the greatest threats to this is personal animosity, grievances which are allowed to fester. And in these verses, Jesus is basically urging his disciples to cultivate a habit of forgiveness as God has forgiven us in him. So Peter, who is clearly getting some of this message and now wants to show himself to have uh, received some of the teaching of Jesus and to, you know, to demonstrate that he is the teacher's pet, uh, comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Uh, I know that two would be going it, and three would be really over the top. How about seven times, you know? And Jesus, of course, uh, says, um, well, actually, uh, 70 times seven, uh, i.e., an unthinkable number. You don't keep count, you just keep on uh, forgiving and extending grace and mercy and forgiveness. There is no, Peter must have felt a bit deflated, um, but what Jesus is saying is there is no limit to God's grace. There is no limit to God's generosity or his mercy, which he has extended towards us. And therefore, um, we too cannot claim the right to withhold forgiveness because God doesn't. And of course, he tells this rather graphic story. And there's a master who has servants, and clearly some of them owe him things. They've got into debt in some kind of way. We don't know how. And the first one we meet owes an unthinkable amount, even more than Nadim Zahawi. And uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, there's a significant penalty to be paid here. Uh, 
the amount that, you, you know, 10,000 bags of gold or however much it is, you know, it, it, it is an unthinkable amount. I mean, it's the kind of sum that you, you just couldn't compute. And when the man says, be patient and I will repay it, you can imagine Jesus' followers laughing. Nobody in their lifetime is going to earn a fraction of that. There's no way this can be repaid. This man is in a hopeless situation. And so the master does what a master would do in that context and that age. He resolves to sell him and his wife and his children just to get a little bit back. And the master, the servant pleads with him. And this is the thing. Um, the master, who clearly stands for, uh, for God, when the slave, verse 26, falls to the ground, asking for patience, the Lord of the slave, verse 27, felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. What is the, at the heart of the character of God? Compassion. We cannot pretend. You see, again, this is a big difference between the, what the world wants to do is pretend that I am all right that what I do is beyond reproach. Nobody has the right. But deep down, of course, we know that there are consequences to our actions. We feel uneasy with the impact we sometimes have on others. Um, forgiveness is not excusing. It's not saying, there, there, it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is bearing the cost fully myself. This master doesn't say, well, let's pretend you don't owe anything. There is a significant debt that he's owed, but he takes it upon himself. He bears the cost. It is a cost to his personal finances. That's mercy. That's grace. That's forgiveness. It's, it, it's, it's not excusing. It is forgiving. And of course, what happens then is that this servant, who we might assume goes you know, away from the presence of the master with uh, the joy of you know, uh, everything lifted from him, surely in his demeanor towards others, he would want to express that sense of joy, not a bit of it. First person he comes to owes him 50 pence. That's really about the scale of it. And um, so the guy, you know, it's the same words, isn't it? Um, uh, the man seizes him and begins to choke him, pay back what you owe. His fellow slave falls to the ground and begins to plead with him, say, practice, have patience with me, I will repay you. It's entirely realistic that he would be able to in due course. But the first servant's having none of it. He was unwilling. Threw him into prison till he should pay back what was owed. It is unthinkable. Um, but, of course, what Jesus is doing here is holding up something of a mirror. And kind of saying, and how often do we, do you behave like that, sec that, that first servant? We have received uh, immense grace and mercy. Our sin has been wiped away. Everything that God could hold against us, he has chosen not to because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, those of us who have been introduced to the realm of God's mercy choose not to inhabit that realm but rather to inhabit the realm of justice. Give me what I deserve. You wronged me. I will have my rights. That's what, that's what, and of course what happens is that the other slaves hear about this. They report the, the thing to the master who hauls the first servant back in. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And moved with anger, the Lord hands him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. Not a, not a happy ending. The question that faces us is, 
which realm do we want to inhabit? You see, we, we have a choice. Do we want to inhabit the realm of mercy or the realm of justice? And I, I suspect in my worst moments, I want to inhabit the realm of mercy when it comes to my walk with God and the realm of justice when it comes to my relationships with others, especially the annoying people who really should know better, especially people in my family, actually, who kind of, you know, um, are not sensitive to my needs when they really should be. Uh, those irritating people, you know those people. I mean, gosh, they have it coming to them. But, you know, we're like that so often, aren't we? Or the person who, you know, is a real pain in the butt at work and ought to know better, especially because I'm such a good colleague to them uh, or a good, you know, employer or whatever it might be. Or the neighbour who is really awkward. You know, anybody in their right minds would take my side and think I was justified in, in, in the way I'm, I'm treating them. And, of course, what Jesus is saying is, we can't have it both ways. Either we, uh, and, and again, let, let me say that being, inhabiting the realm of mercy is not about excusing things, turning a blind eye. It's actually saying there is a cost to this. So it might be saying to a family member, do you know, when you do that, do you know how it makes me feel? Uh, I'd love things to be different. That's a very different approach, isn't it? That's a, a relational approach. That's rather in keeping with the first part of, of, Matthew, of that passage in Matthew 18, rather than insisting on my rights. And of course, there is a, a warning here um, that Jesus says, you know, if, if we insist on our rights, then God will say, okay, you can have your rights. But the, right, the end of that road with him is, is, is not a pretty place. Because what do we deserve from God? Nothing except his anger and his judgment, because we all fall far short. Um, Tom Wright, in commenting on this passage, says this, uh, From God's point of view, the distance between being ordinary, ordinarily sinful, what we all are, and extremely sinful, what people we don't like seem to be, is like the distance between London and Paris as seen from the point of view of the sun, uh, S-U-N. Uh, I mean, it is, isn't it? it it's so infinitesimal. And yet we, we, you know, we, those of us who have received mercy find it so hard not to show mercy. We practice forgiveness because God does, and we want to imitate him. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. You know, we, let, let us be like you, Lord. Let us have your heart. Let us not pretend that sin and injustice does not matter. We will expose it, but we will not, as it were, take it personally. We will not um, look for justice. And we do it too because it is a visible sign of the presence of the kingdom. Uh, we want to demonstrate that actually we welcome those who are not perfect. You know, the, the, the cancel culture in which we live has a high ex expectation on people never stepping out of line or never stepping out of line with my expectations of them. The community of which we're a part recognizes that we all step out of line. But there is grace. There is mercy. There is the hope of a fresh start. So, why do we practice forgiveness and reconciliation? because we're responsible for one another, but also because our common life is to be a visible signpost to God's mercy and grace. 
And the third and final one, more briefly, is this. Because actually, unforgiveness is crippling for our spiritual and emotional health. When I refuse to behave in the way that God behaves towards me, when I harbor a grudge, it becomes a poison inside me, with a root of bitterness, which pollutes my, me and distorts me, uh, and actually prevents me uh, from being alert to the goodness of God and the, and the beauty of the life that he wants to uh, give me, and may well keep me from knowing the joy of his presence, or the sense of his presence. It's not that God is absent, it's just that, I, I, you know, I, I've just sort of blocked him out, really. Remember, really clearly, it was a lot of years ago, it was when I was first involved in church leadership, but, uh, and in a church in Hull. I remember we had a young woman who came to faith through our young women's ministry. She was a young mum, and uh, I knew that she'd had a, a history of, of depression and, and so on, but she'd gloriously come to faith. But then I remember being called round to her house by a couple of her friends because uh, she was she was suicidally depressed and they were really fearful for her. Um, I, I'd had a bit of experience as a psychiatric nurse before I was ordained. Maybe they thought that was going to be helpful. Uh, and uh, but I remember being you know thinking, gosh, what a mess we have here and. Just you know, trying to talk to her, and uh, she, such a. And I remember, you know, when you're in those situations, and you're saying, "Lord, what what do I say here?" And graciously, God said, "Ask her about her mother." So I thought, "Oh, okay." So I said, D -d "Linda, tell me about your relationship with your mother." And uh, she, this look of venomous look came across her face. She said, "I hate her. I want to kill her." Oh, that was a bit of a surprise, you know. And then she began to talk about this abusive relationship that she'd undergone all through her teenage years and so on, and how she hated her mother, she wanted her dead and so on. And having listened to her, I then gulped and, and said, um, do you know what, I, I, I actually think, Linda, you, you probably need to forgive her. And uh, there was another sort of tirade, this sort of venom came out and so on, and we began to talk more and... Um, after quite some time, she came to the point, new Christian, of, of, of acknowledging that maybe she couldn't pray that God would forgive her mother, but she could pray, ask the Lord to give her the desire that she didn't have to forgive her. It was a great breakthrough. So we prayed that, and there was a wonderful sort of, you know, breakthrough in the heavenlies, and then she was able to actually say, do you know what, Lord, I forgive her. And there was an absolute monumental breakthrough. And she just, overnight, something broke within. I wish all pastoral ministry was as easy as that. Um, but the point was this. It, it, early on for me, it was a graphic illustration of the fact that unforgiveness is firstly more of a block for us than it is for the person that they might be totally unaware that we're not, you know. Uh, and um, but the, But... The Lord is gracious to us in such a way that he gives us the power to be able to operate in his realm. If we hold on to uh, unforgiveness, forgiveness, one writer put it like this, is like the air in our lungs. If we want to take more in, we have to breathe more out. Otherwise, we will suffocate. And we'll suffocate spiritually. You know, um, a place where people hold grudges is an unhealthy place, uh, particularly for those who hold the grudges. And God wants to set us free from that. He wants us, 
again, it's not pretending that life isn't difficult, that we don't hit huge, you know, um, obstacles in terms of our desire to have good relationships, but God is gracious, and his grace extends to empowering us to be able to do well in this area. We are a community who exists solely because of the grace and mercy of God. That is our access into this fellowship that we enjoy, not just here locally, but within the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. Our capacity to live well and relate well to one another, to, to live in the realm of God's grace and forgiveness, may well be the most winsome thing we have to offer others. And by His Spirit, the Lord wants to, as it were, express His life in this particular way, uh, in our lives, in our dealings with one another, and our, our dealings with others in the different spheres in which we operate. So, if you're able, why don't you stand? <laughs>